We are, it's nice to have Lucy with us this afternoon from Bromley. It's great to have you back, Lucy. It's also great to have, is it Kyla? Kayla, Kayla. Remember Kayla was born how long ago now, Nicola? Nicola's granddaughter, Kayla, was born three months early and has been in, obviously, in intensive care for a very long time. Is this her first appearance at the church? Let's give her, Kayla, a sensitive welcome. <laughs> we don't want to wake her up. But you're very welcome, Kayla. And um, lots of other babies seem to be popping out everywhere. It's lovely to see you. <laughs> um, we are, as they do, um, effortlessly. As, okay, so um, we are, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, sorry, the Sermon on the Mount. We started that last week, <coughs> which is the name, I guess, given to the passage of teaching um, that covers Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So if you uh, have a Bible with you and you want to follow uh, today, it's actually only one sentence we're going to be looking at, but just to at least get a sense of being in, in the location scripturally, then Matthew 5, chapter 5 is a place to go. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. Um, I'm going to pray and then try to ex- give some explanation and we'll get into some what is, I would say, quite significant meat today. So if, um, if you're ready for that, then... That's a good thing. Father, thank you so much for this incredible teaching um, that kills us and makes us new every time we get near it. And Lord, I pray that you would kill us and make us new today, please, through this teaching. I pray that we would, um, we would be incredibly helped by the Holy Spirit. Uh, help me to communicate this properly as you would have it communicated. And I pray, Father, please, for the church, that ears would be given to hear what you are saying. Give this a substance and an authentic reality, Lord, that only you can bring, I pray. Amen. Now, let me just explain the sermon again. I said last week there are two main ways people go wrong with this sermon. The first way is the Christian liberal way, which is basically people reading it, all this stuff about turning the other cheek, and if people make you carry their stuff for one mile, go two miles, they read it and they say, this is amazing, this is wonderful, we love this stuff. Yes, Jesus modelled this, let's copy Jesus. The problem with it is it's completely unreal and it gives no real uh, substance to the fact that we are fallen, depraved, selfish, and if someone slaps us around the face, we slap them back, don't we? Or at least we want to, which before God is as good as doing it. So... That's completely wrong way of interpreting it. The other wrong way is what you might call the hyper-Calvinist way, which says, well, we know there's this amazing high standard, but Jesus lived it and lived it for us. Therefore, when we come to this teaching, the best approach is to say, golly, this is, this is hard, but don't worry. Jesus did it, so it doesn't really matter anymore. We can do what we please. That as well is completely uh, undermining the message because in the last few verses of this sermon, Jesus says, if you put these words into practice, you'll be like someone who builds their house on the rock. And when the storms come, it will stand. If you don't, if you say it doesn't matter, then you'll be like someone who's built their house on the sand. And when the storms come, you're, 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 what you've built will fall. So both those interpretations are wrong. What is the correct interpretation? It would seem that it's thus. Jesus here is playing Moses. If you think back to when Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt, they went into the wilderness and then Moses went up to a mountain to meet with God and he brought back on tablets of stone the commandments. 
and it ushered in the old, what we call the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the agreement between God and his people under Moses. Jesus here is beginning to introduce the new covenant, and so we read in chapter one, verse 1 of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And then when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he's up on the mountain, he's, he's kind of doing a Moses thing, and then the disciples come to him, out, the crowds are there, but the disciples come to him, and he teaches them, because what he's saying is, I'm creating a new community out of the masses, I'm creating a new community under a new covenant. And instead of commandments written on stone, these commandments are going to be written on your heart. You're going to be born again. You're going to be made brand new. Something's going to happen to you by the Holy Spirit, which makes you brand new. And part of that will mean that your heart works completely differently. Things are written into the depths of it, which are the very incredible supernatural things that you could never do naturally. But when born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which happens as a free gift, you are empowered to live that kind of life. Does that make sense? That's how to interpret this message here. So, what, so as you come face to face with it, you are killed because you realise there's no way I can do this naturally. Everything in me doesn't do this, does the opposite. I do get angry, I do lust, I do worry. And so you get killed. You come to the end of yourself and you fall on Jesus to save you. But then, the life that Jesus brings to you is such incredible, powerful, supernatural life that you find yourself living very differently and doing those things that you could never do naturally. So that's how we're going to approach it. I believe that is the right way to approach this. It starts with what we call the Beatitudes, where Jesus just brings these declarations of blessing and they are incredibly surprising and counterintuitive and they make you think, say that again, did I hear that right? Last week we looked at, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognise they have nothing spiritually, nothing to commend themselves before God. These are the people, Someone who's poor in spirit doesn't give a long list of the good deeds they do and that's why they're going to get into heaven. Someone who's poor in spirit says, woe is me, a sinner, I've got no chance. Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. That's what blessed means, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This second one today is probably the most shocking and the most how on earth does that work. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the sad. How does this work? Well, it's looking at conversion, like I said. These Beatitudes are describing the conversion process. This is what the Holy Spirit does when someone gets born again. Certain things happen. First of all, there's this poverty of spirit. You realise, flip, I can't do it. I can, no matter how much I try, how tightly I screw up my eyes, I can't act righteous. In fact, it gets worse. The more I try, the worse it gets. Because when I succeed... I'm really proud. I become a Pharisee, and they're the worst. And when I blow it, I fall into despair, and I become just utterly um, depressed. So whatever I do in my own power makes things worse. That's, that is part of the process of being born again. Nick, would you be able to just close that door? Is that okay? Thanks, I appreciate that. Um, kids' party going on, sorry. Um, so that's the first element. But then we reach this one today. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's shocking. 
but it's blessed. It is, there's a, somehow, in a certain kind of morning, there's a blessing. And it is, it, you will be misunderstood if you are born again. If you, if, if you walk in these blessings, people that don't know these blessings won't get it, and they'll think you're just being strange. There's another a litmus test of whether or not you're born again. Has anyone ever looked at you and said, or that pulled that kind of a face, or said, what? Or, as you've explained it, they've repeated it back to you, but they really haven't understood it. There's positive things in there. It means you're explaining something that is utterly incomprehensible to those without the Holy Spirit. So, um, what is this morning? Is it a specific kind of morning, or just is it a general kind of morning? Is it Jesus just saying, Do you know what, lots of bad things happen in life. If you mourn and be sad about them, don't worry, because good times will come. Is it like sort of just like a disco kind of thing? You know, sad song, happy song. You know, there's, there'll be tough times, but don't worry. You know, we'll put Bill with us on a lovely day, and then everything's going to be all right. Is it, is it that general thing? No, two reasons why it's not that general thing. Like I just said, this sermon is not a comment on life in general. It's Jesus explaining the kingdom life. He's explaining things that are specific to being converted to knowing God, to becoming a Christian, to new life in Christ. That's what it's about. It's not about new, just life in general. Yeah, we all have hard times, but then hang in there. It will get better. I could say that anywhere, couldn't I? And everyone would go, well, yeah, because, you know, that does happen. Hard things happen, but then if you, you know, sit it out long enough, some good things happen. It's not, I'm not going to say anything. It's just life. The second reason why, more sobering, that is a bad interpretation is this is that it is inaccurate to say all of those who mourn are comforted. It's just not true. There are countless alcoholic, drug addicts, depressed and isolated people in our city alone, let alone the nation or the world, who are mourning something or the other. Something that didn't happen that they hoped would. Or some terrible thing that did happen that they hoped wouldn't. And they're mourning it. And their way of dealing with it is isolation or substance abuse. But many go to their grave mourning. Bitter. Sad. So if Jesus is saying, you know what, blessed are those who mourn everyone because they'll be comforted, he's not telling the truth. That is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a specific kind of mourning. And it's got one umbrella word with three subheadings. The word is mourning over sin. And here's the subheading today. Mourning over your own sin. Number one. Mourning over the sins of others. The terrible things that go on in the world at large and specifically in the church. And finally, mourning over the consequences of sin, death. There's a certain kind of mourning that someone who is born again by the Holy Spirit, enters into as part of their conversion and part of their Christian life that are absolutely vital and necessary. We're going to look at those today and hopefully as we do so, we will see where the joy fits in. <laughs> Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones on this, blessed are those who mourn. He says this, We come to a consideration of the second beatitude, blessed are or happy are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. This, like the first, stands out at once and marks off the Christian as being quite unlike the man who is not a Christian and who belongs to the world. Indeed, the world would and does regard a statement like this as utterly ridiculous. Happy are those who mourn. 
The one thing the world tries to shun is mourning. Its whole organisation is based on the supposition that that is something to avoid. The philosophy of the world is, forget your troubles, turn your back on them, do everything you can not to face them. Things are bad enough as they are without your going looking for troubles, says the world, therefore be as happy as you can. The whole organisation of life, the pleasure mania, the money, energy and enthusiasm that are expended in entertaining people are all just an expression of the great aim of the world to get away from this idea of mourning and this spirit of mourning. But the Gospel says, happy are they that mourn. Indeed, they are the only ones who are happy. If you turn to the parallel passage in Luke 6, you will find it is put in a still more striking manner because there the negative is employed where Jesus says, Woe unto you that laugh now. Our Lord says, For you shall mourn and weep. This saying condemns the apparent laughter, joviality and happiness of the world by pronouncing a woe upon it. But it promises blessing and happiness, joy and peace to those who mourn. These preliminary statements then concerning the Christian are obviously of primary importance. Let's talk about mourning our own sin. I want to ask, do you know this? Do you know what it is to mourn your own sin? Have you experienced this? Because I'm suggesting that it's part of conversion. John Stott says this, there is not enough sorrow for sin among us. We should experience more godly grief of Christian penitence, like that sensitive and Christ-like 18th century missionary to the American Indians, David Brainerd, who wrote in his journal on the 18th of October, 1740, quote, in my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness, unquote. Tears like that are the holy water which God is said to store in his bottle. In Psalm 56, verse 8, God speaks of, over mourning believers, I'll store your tears in my bottle. I see your tears. I see your tears, your brokenheartedness, over your awareness of your sinfulness and their treasure to me. He doesn't despise them. Listen to Lloyd-Jones again. I have no hesitation, again, in asserting that the failure of the church to have a greater impact upon the life of men and women in the world today is due entirely to the fact that her own life is not in order. There is the double failure. There is not the real deep conviction of sin as once was the case. And on the other hand, there is this superficial conception of joy and happiness which is very different indeed from that which we find in the New Testament. Thus, the defective doctrine of sin and the shallow idea of joy working together of necessity produce a superficial kind of person and a very inadequate kind of Christian life. What is this defective doctrine of sin? That people don't get sin. I will explain how it happens in our world today quickly and in the, even in a lot of the church. It's this. We explain people in terms of their environment. We say people are behaving like this because this happened to them. Or people are behaving this way. They're doing these bad things because of these bad experiences. And so what people do is they say, let's give these people lots of good experiences and then they'll turn out right. And it is a gross misunderstanding of what people are and what sin is. Now, am I saying that things that happen to us don't shape us? Of course they do, massively. But I want to just give a little bit of um, personal uh, testimony for just a moment. Is, is it easy to pause and then start the sermon recording again? Is that easy? Is anyone up there? Oh, hi Sarah. Could you just pause for a moment? It's so easy to blame, isn't it? 
And, and especially when it's sort of justified, you know, parents this, that, the other, someone who did this terrible thing, and, and the thing is terrible, and the thing has in some ways shaped you and, and even ruined you, and you think, gosh, this is terrible. I'm not disputing any of that, and the gospel brings healing and comfort. We're going to look at all of that, okay? But all I'm saying is this. Don't believe that's the heart of the matter. Because if none of those terrible things had happened, would you or would you not have needed saving? Yes. Yes, you would. Because the primary problem is sin in the heart. It's not always a popular message, but it's the truth. Sin, everything that's against God, from the very direction of a heart that just doesn't want to know God, to the more obvious things like murder, hatred and greed, they break God's heart. Listen to Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Wow. Don't ask me how a God who knows all things beginning to end is able to... I don't know how that works. But, but what I do know is when God looks upon us in our sinfulness, it grieves him. Listen to Ezekiel. Because when, it, when it's God's special people, he's chosen, he's called out ones, those who are saved, it's even stronger. Listen to this. God's speaking to these people that have just gone against him with terrible things. And he's speaking about a judgment that's coming. And he says, and the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I'm the Lord. Yet I will leave some of you alive. And when you are among the nations, some will escape the sword. And when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring hearts. This is God. This is God. How I have been broken. What is this? Over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they'll be loathsome in their own sight for the evils they've committed. All their abominations. This is what sin does. It breaks him, especially among his own people. It breaks him. It's the heart of God. Look at the broken body of Jesus. There's a, I mean, there's a vivid image of the brokenness of God over our sin. There it is, on the cross. Marred beyond human likeness. That's the seriousness of sin. You can't trump that with any grievance you may have, any injustice you've experienced. You can't trump that. Any pain you may carry. Your own sin took Christ to the cross. If our sin should cause God to weep and be broken, how much more should it cause us to weep and be broken? That's the point. There it is. Blessed are those who mourn. The promise is that as we mourn over our sin, we will find true comfort. The forgiveness of sin. Listen to this quote. The greatest of all comfort is the absolution pronounced upon every contrite mourning sinner. Here's the wonder. As you come today and grieve your sin and wonder at the victory of Christ on your behalf, God says, I completely forgive you. I completely welcome you. I take you to be with me. I don't judge you. I save you. Because he judged his son on the cross. What a heart. That he could be broken by our sin in one moment. And then as soon as we turn to him in genuine grief over our sin, he says yes and runs towards us. Isn't he amazing? 
Isn't he? What love, what generosity, what breadth, what size, what largesse. What a great king we serve. What a saviour we serve. Christian joy is rooted in reconciliation with God through the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. That cannot be taken away from you. You can lose your job. Things can go really pear-shaped. No one can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can steal your joy. If it's the joy of the Lord, if it's that blessedness that Jesus is speaking of here, and not just a superficial thing or things are going well, if it's that deep joy, nothing can take it away. Because nothing can separate you from him. And then there's mourning over the sin of others. Because when you get a renewed heart, you find that your love for God just grows and your hatred for sin grows. Why? Because you're becoming more and more like him. Through the miracle of new birth, we have this renewed heart. And so we find it's not just our own sin that we mourn over, but as we carry the nature and presence of the Lord in our hearts, we break over the sins that are committed in the wider world and especially in the church. We find that we're delivered from superficiality. We learn how to carry the heart of God. Listen to John Stott again. We need then to observe the Christian life according to Jesus is not all joy and laughter. Some Christians seem to imagine that especially if they're filled with the Spirit, they must wear a perpetual grin on their face and be continually boisterous and bubbly. How unbiblical can one become? No. In Luke's version of the sermon, Jesus added to this beatitude a solemn woe, woe to you that laugh now. The truth is, there are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. Listen to David in Psalm 119. My eyes shed streams of tears because people don't keep your law. What's happening there? He's seeing the way others live, and he's moved to tears. Why? Because it it breaks God's heart, so it breaks his heart. Listen to Paul in Philippians. Many of whom I've often told you now and tell you even now with tears walk as enemies of the cross. Listen to Paul again in Corinthians. It's reported there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. A man has his father's wife and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Listen to what happened to Jesus. When he drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. This is what it means to be part of God's church. To carry the world, the nations in your heart, because he does, and especially to carry in your heart the people of God, the church. You feel it. I read recently of someone high up in a Christian charity organisation, high up, in a good Christian charity, one that's really out there about Jesus, an amazing charity. A man high of influence. They discovered for years he'd been milking the phones. For years he'd been taking money out of this very charity he was working for. And my, my instant reaction, I was just sad. You say, no, why? For the glory of Christ. You're, you're, in the name of Jesus, you're stealing. It's bad enough to steal, but you're doing it in the name of Jesus. And you weep and your heart breaks. You feel the pain as you're part of the body of Christ. You feel the pain as other, if another church breaks or divides. You feel it. If in your own congregation, there's brothers or sisters that are struggling. You feel it. You carry one another. I know that you do. I know we carry one another. It's hard to carry every single individual as it gets bigger. But I know we'll, there's a lot of interconnection. There's a carrying of one another. We weep with one another. 
talking to someone before the service, I'm struggling not to cry because it's been tough. Why? Well, because it's sad. We weep with each other. It's, we're part of the same body. It's like when you, you, know, you hurt your toe now and your whole face is going, oh. you're part of the same body. You feel it. Even though you're different members. This is what it is to be born again. Do you know this? Do you know this? You're blessed if you do. You're blessed. Weeping when one of us fails, falls, messes up, looking to restore. The promise is as we do this, as we weep, as we mourn, we will find true comfort. There will be true comfort. This means strength. It means the church will be built up in love. It means the church will become an effective witness in the world. And finally, mourning over death as a consequence of sin. John 11, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The Jews said, see how we loved him. Now, why did he weep? In some ways, you might say, well, because his friend died. He's just about to raise him from the dead. And he knows he's just about to raise him from the dead. And a few days before, he said, it's okay, it's all for the glory of God. Um, just he knows what he's about to do. Why is he crying? He's crying because he hates death. He's crying. His heart is broken. He mourned over the sadness, the grief, the pain, and the sheer unnaturalness of death. Because it's an enemy. And it's not part of God's natural order. Now, because of the resurrection, we know that death has lost its sting. Hallelujah. We know we've got nothing to fear in death. We know that at Christ's return, it will ultimately be brought to nothing. Death will have to give up all that it's taken, all whom it's taken, so they might stand before the judgment seat of God. And yet, even though we know all of this, it's still completely appropriate that Christians mourn when people die. Not as those who have no hope, but that we still in our hearts, feel the pain of it. That is normal, and that is right. If you don't, you're not blessed. Even though you know, for a believer, they're going to be raised up there with Christ now, there's still something in you that goes, this is wrong. And as time goes on as a church, we will have to learn to face death, and face death well. We're such a young congregation, in that sense of not having to face a lot of that kind of thing. As we get older, there will be more and more of us who die natural causes. Without trying to be a prophet of doom, I'm imagining that at some points people will pass away when they're not 70 or 80. And we'll need to learn how to handle that. What is the right response? Lots and lots of tears. And lots and lots of hope. Mourning. Grief. Comfort. And joy mixed in together. It's the privilege of the believer to know how that, those things come together. But we've got to learn to, we're going to have to learn as a people to die well. Live well and die well. It's important. Those who are born again can do that. What is this comfort that we're promised? If you mourn over your sin, sins of others, death, what is this comfort? Revelation 7, verse 17, listen to this. 
the lamb, that's Jesus in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a picture. God himself coming up to you and just wiping it away. God's not saying, buck your ideas up. Come on, stop that crying. You'll come over and wipe them away. There you go. That's your God. Listen to the wonders of what will happen, of what will happen when the Lord returns. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. What a moment, what a moment where we together will look at each other and say, wow, it finally happened. And all darkness and sadness and sin, I mean, this will be like a dream. Those things will be like a dream. You remember that? Remember that crazy battle we used to live in? The spirit and the flesh. Do you remember that? Wow, those are some times. Woo! Glad they're over. Remember those crazy, ridiculous, little petty squabbles you used to have over who knows what? Crazy, silly behaviour. Remember those silly old fears we used to walk in the room and think, oh, I better not talk, no, no one wants to talk to me. Remember all that silly stuff I used to go on in my head? And now I'm so liberated from all that, I just come in and cuddle everyone. <laughs> it's a wonder, isn't it? It's a wonderful, wonderful thought. Just to be fully human, fully liberated. The Bible just got me liberated where, where we can put on immortality. We put off this old tent. That's the plan. That's what God's doing. And it's not fanciful. He's already doing it on the inside. You're becoming newer every day. Transformed daily into Christ's likeness. That's what God's about. That's what God's doing with us. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, listen, you need, to, you need first of all, pour in spirit. You've got to realise you can't save yourself. You need a saviour. And then you've got to let the Holy Spirit convict you of your sin and bring you to a place where you mourn you mourn your pride, you mourn your selfishness, you mourn your unbelief, you mourn your arrogance, you mourn your hard-heartedness. You haven't got to generate it, it's just something the Holy Spirit will do if you let him. You might think, it sounds a bit morbid. It's not morbid. It's the path to comfort, joy and forgiveness. Because if you haven't seen the seriousness of your sin, I do want to be a little bit provocative and say, I'm not sure you've seen the cross. I'm not sure you get it. I'm not sure you get it. Why was he there? You've got to know why he was there. Because of your pride. My pride. Our unbelief. All those things. That's why he was there. And the gospel is the grounds for all of this comfort. Listen to this that was prophesied over Jesus, then we'll respond. Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There it is, poor in spirit. Sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, those who are mourning. To proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We are a people whose lives, hearts are grounded on repentance, grounded on turning away and turning towards. That is the rhythm of my life. I turn away daily and turn towards. I turn away hourly and turn towards. I turn away every time the Holy Spirit convicts me, oh yeah, and turn towards. That's the, that's the posture of our lives as believers. And yet we're empowered to do that by the new life that's been put in us by the grace of God. I want to give people an opportunity here to come and just repent of sin. Okay? I just I want to do that. Um, it, the Holy Spirit goes to work through the Word. The beauty of just simply preaching the Bible is that you know the Holy Spirit's going to just do what He does to it. Okay? He would have done stuff. Um, it's great to be able to just respond. So I want to ask that the band will come. We're going to go in, uh, now have our bread and wine where we remember Jesus' death on the cross for us, for our sins. Please only come and take this if you're a believer. This is for those who are in Christ. If you want to become a believer, if you want to give your life to Christ, you want to turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus, then in just a moment when I ask for a response, for repentance, then as the believers come down to get right with God, and then you come down too, and you just do what they're all going to do, which is basically when I'm going to ask you to come down and just take your place, kneel on the floor, and just get right with God. Just get right with God. And uh, the promise is as you do that, he will bring comfort to you. As you mourn your sin, he will comfort you. Okay? It's not just like, just mourn your sin, be sad. No, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay? He will comfort you. He will meet you there, if it's genuine. He will meet you there. You see, that's the, that's the other thing I was reading, I was studying this week. You realise the rhythm is, you realise you're saying, oh gosh, ah, you feel gutted, horrified, perplexed, and then you get taken by the Spirit to Christ. Ah, my righteousness. See, it's beautiful, isn't it? Whoever needs to repent, if you're a believer and you know you need to just get right with God and mourn over some sin, you want to come and do that on your knees, please come and do that now. If you're not a believer, but you want to give your life to Christ, you say, I want this, come down the front now, please. The bank can just play. Let's make our way down to the front. Uh, you're not coming to kneel before me. I'll be probably over there kneeling myself. Um, just come and come down.